0: Welcome to Defend the Faith Live. Defend the Faith Live is a Perusia podcast series where we join Dr Robert Haddad to take a look at a chapter a month of Defend the Faith, Dr Haddad's excellent book on Catholic apologetics with host Matthew Herman Tay. In this episode, we cover the chapter on the necessity of baptism, Defend the Faith live is recorded online with a live audience. To be part of the live online audience during these recordings and to interact in the private Q and A sessions that follow, please join the Perusia mailing list by visiting perusiamedia.com and clicking on Mailing List to enter your details so we can email you the links. Perusia podcast is produced in partnership with EWTN Asia Pacific and Voice of Charity Radio Australia. Hello, my name is Matthew Herman Taig for the Australian Apostolate Perusia. This is Defend the Faith Live. And as such, I have with me, as always, the author of the book Defend the Faith. Dr. Robert Haddad. Robert, how are you this evening?
1: Oh, very good. Thanks, Matthew. Great to see you again.
0: Yes, likewise. Uh, And I love that you said great to see you again, because as we're recording in May of 2022, uh, we've just uh, come off uh, Perusia's first fundraising dinner in three years. And uh, you were one of our guests at that dinner. And uh, of course, Uh, you got up to give a little bit of an introduction about a a new program that you're preparing. And uh, you talked a little bit about the importance of always being prepared to defend the faith. And I'd like you to to just go over that very quickly for our Defend the Faith live audience.
1: Yeah, thanks, Matthew. Firstly, it was a great honour to be invited and to uh, address the those who gathered. I think the gathering was very upbeat. I I felt Mm -hmm. the positivity among the guests uh, like this is the first big post COVID event and the first Perusia dinner since 2019. So I felt that people are out there to make a, an appearance and, you know, revitalize their own lives and their faith lives in this way. Um, yeah, I was, uh, invited to speak about two things briefly, the Perusia Academy, which is that great initiative that, you know, Perusia the Apostolate now has, going and 40 students plus are involved in that but also to semi-launch the latest uh, book that I've produced it's a fruit of my uh, doctoral studies and it's um, a program in new apologetics for secondary schools and uh, as a book it's called always be prepared Mm -hmm. and that's from obviously the the great magna carta for apologists Uh, St. Peter in his first epistle, chapter 3, verse 15, where he says, always be prepared to give a reasoned explanation for the hope that is in you and always do it with gentleness and reverence. And that's an injunction on all Catholics, all Christians, whoever they may be. Uh, and, And it's said to everyone who's baptized, it's not an injunction just for Academics or scholars or theologians or philosophers or you know form or priests or religious or bishops, etc. The hierarchy, it's for everyone who's baptized. And mm. and we get equipped um, for giving reasoned explanations or defending our faith by virtue of our baptism and confirmation. But we also need to work at it. So we've got to know our faith, we've got to know the what we also have to answer the why. And I I always like to summarize apologetics as answering the why questions, giving that reason explanation to anyone all and sundry who asks those questions. They might ask those questions out of hostility to Catholicism or out of genuine and sincere inquiry. But nevertheless, whatever rationale they might have for their questions, we're required to supply an answer. And anyone can be a potential apologist. That's why I've got behind Perugia Academy, because uh, you don't have to be a master in theology uh, to start as an apologist. If we had to know everything before we started, we'll never get started. Mm-hmm. You know? So um, I would always encourage anyone to be Uh, prepared to give answers and when they can't on the spot to tricky questions would simply just say look I'll get back to you in 24 or 48 hours I'll do the research I'll come back to you because one thing I used to always believe even when I was uh, more of a nominal Catholic or an ignorant Catholic uh, was that look I don't know the answer but I'm sure the Catholic Church has an answer I just gotta go I just gotta discover it and, and, and share it and we're not doing enough by way of sharing and providing uh, the answers. We're not doing enough by way of catechesis uh, and informing our own people about our own faith. And we've got to do a lot more with regards to non-Catholics in answering their sincere or even hostile questions for their own benefit. So apologetics becomes a a service, an act of charity towards them.
0: Oh, Amen, And uh, I shared with the room, and I'm going to share with our listeners uh, here tonight as well, uh, that you actually sat me down a while back and uh, and said exactly this to me and really encouraged me to do more and, and maybe even do some formal study and so on. And I shared with the room that I listed maybe 10 uh, different objections and you shot every single one of them down. So I told the room, look, if you don't think you can do this, if you think you're the wrong person to defend your faith, you know, I challenge you, go and give your objections to Dr. Robert Haddad and see what happens. And so I wanna cover just a couple of the objections that I gave you initially, Mm -hmm. Robert. Um, One of course was that I'm 47 years old and therefore too old to start studying. What was your response if you remember? Well,
1: you're not dead yet. I can't remember exactly <laughs> what I said. Give your response now. Forty-seven. You're not dead yet, and who knows how many great years you have ahead of you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think sometimes we are, we are our own worst enemy. We mm-hmm. put ourselves down. Now, there's unfortunately there's an unfortunate tendency for people out of envy or jealousy to put people down and marginalize and you know exclude them but sometimes we are our own worst enemy and mm-hmm. we, we we have a a, a a inferior inferiority complex we put ourselves down when hey we all got the potential yeah. and we need to you know uh grow those seeds of potential within us it's never a bad time to start
0: yes and you, never you, too
1: late to start
0: indeed you Look, you also shared with me what age you were when you when you, when you went back to study to start doing your doctorate and when you finished it and and how many years you had been in study as well so share that well, with our listeners
1: yeah I didn't get my first master's degree until I was 43 and a half okay? And I didn't start my doctorate until I was 53 and a half. Mm-hmm. And I finished my doctorate on the, on the first of, I submitted it on the first of May, 2020 for examination. So then I was just shy of my 57th birthday. Okay. And now I'm just shy of my 58th birthday. Yeah. I am so glad I got it. Look, the problem is, as I'm with at the risk of contradicting myself, I want to make it very clear you don't need formal qualifications to be an effective apologist. Amen. You need your baptism, your confirmation, you need the will, you need the desire, you need the passion, you need the enthusiasm, and then go run with that. You can do great things for God, Jesus Christ, his church, the Catholic faith. and. Catholics and all all in sundry, okay? But the reason why we get formal qualifications is to get credibility in the eyes of those who, uh, you know, would not look at us with such charity or Mm. respect or, you know, et cetera. So when you have degrees under your belt, then people take more notice of what you're saying. And my supervisor, the great Professor Gerard O'Shea, but I, I do call great deliberately because I think he's one of the great heroes of Catholic education in this country in the modern age, as well as being a supreme gentleman. Um, he said it to me very frankly, knowing that I do work in you know, Catholic education uh, and been doing it for over 30 years and a, a apologetics part time on the side, he said to me, Robert, no one's going to listen to you unless you have a doctrine. And what he meant by no one, he's talking about the those at the cutting edge of the apologetics debate in whatever areas whether it be new atheism atheism you know secularism um scientism islamism protestantism fundamentalism whatever etc etc et, cetera, et cetera, uh, post-modernism so he's right and having the doctorate has done a lot for me personally it has removed my own inferiority complex and it's given me a lot more self-confidence and I do notice that people do listen simply because you have a doctrine. And I, I hope I never fall into pride or conceit and believe myself to be superior because I have a doctrine. I am not superior. It's just that I meet the, I better meet the opposition who don't have regard for you unless you've got a a doctrine. You Mm -hmm. see, there are much greater apologists in the world than me. We've got Tim Staples, we've got Dynamic Deacon, we've got Trent Horn, we've got Carlo Brassard, and there's a host of others, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm now more upbeat about my own prospects and more eager to do more in the area of apologetics because I have got these qualifications.
0: Yeah. And uh, after we'd had that conversation, I kind of used that conversation to launch my my next objection, which was, well, well, there you go, Robert. I mean, who am I? You know, surely there's an army of people who are already coming up through the ranks, who are doing their masters and doing their doctorates. So, you know, surely I'm not needed.
1: Well, there, are, there is not an army. There's mm-hmm. a trickle. And a lot of those people who are doing those degrees are doing it for professional reasons in there to be qualified as teachers or theologians, etc. And the vast majority of them are not focused on apologetics as such. They'll be working in other areas of theology or religious education. So the the argument is there's plenty of people out there lining up and coming forth as apologists is not correct. In fact, we have an incredible lack of apologists. Now there's five million Catholics in this country, or nominally so. We should have one apologist for every thousand Catholics. Mm. We should have five thousand. Where are they? Yeah, I can name maybe ten. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about people who are active part-time or full-time in this country. That's the crisis, yeah. we, we, we are lacking them. And who, who it doesn't matter if you're religious, clerical or lay, you got that passion, make it happen. Hmm. I mean, we saw Catholic Answers start in America through a, a, a lay Catholic lawyer in Carl Keating, we saw apologetics rise in this country, and then, and then gain uh, bloom in Britain and in the United States as a result of a 16-year-old Protestant who converted to Catholicism uh, and became a lay Catholic apologist, standing on soapboxes in in the Domain in Sydney, and Hyde Park in London, namely Frank Sheed, uh, and his legacy has lived on decades after he died. Uh, You can do great things for God and we must not put limits on ourselves. Absolutely. And as you
0: say, you know, it is by virtue of our baptism and our confirmation that we are called to be evangelists. Too many Catholics think that that is the job of the priest. Uh, but the job of the priest, of course, is to preach the gospel, administer the sacraments, and to give pastoral care to the people in order to enable them to be the ones who go out and evangelize
1: the world. Yeah, well, yeah. Are too many Catholics who pray, pay, and obey, Yeah, um, and they're the ones who practice. There's 90% who aren't even practicing at all. Hmm. And um, Well, as I said, baptism confirmation we underplay it the old textbooks say that confirmation makes you a, a soldier of christ hmm. well there's a big war out there amen where are the soldiers amen
0: all right well speaking of learning and defending our faith speaking of apologetics and speaking of baptism it's time to get stuck into our subject for this uh, for this evening and just a reminder that this podcast is the companion to the book that we're going through. So uh, the best thing you can do is go to the Prussia website, get a copy of this book, all right, and stick your head in it, stick your nose in it, spend some time in it. These podcasts are just there as sort of uh, an extra bonus. And of course, these live sessions with a live audience are an added bonus, because you can start studying this stuff. And come along and join the live audience, and then chat to Robert afterwards and ask, his, uh, ask him lots and lots of questions. Okay, so our uh, our subject this time around is the necessity of baptism. So, Robert, I wonder if you would define the word baptism for us to get us started.
1: Well, it's from the Greek "baptizein," and that means to be immersed under water. Hmm. Um, it's a pre-Christian world word. It comes into Christianity because of the uh, what we read about in the Gospels concerning the baptism that John the Baptist conducted in the River Jordan, uh, as he prepared the people for the coming of the Messiah, and of course Jesus's own injunction to the disciples in the Great Commission to baptize all nations, and that's a water baptism. Now, the baptism of John the Baptist and, and Jesus are two different baptisms. One sacramental, one is um more a, a baptism for uh, repentance that's John the Baptist while Jesus's baptism is a baptism for forgiveness of sins and it's sacramental but there was baptisms in the ancient world mm-hmm. um there was water baptism and blood baptism practiced in Mithraism as an eastern religion that spread across the Roman empire from east to west particularly in the 2nd century AD um just the martyr St. Justin Martyr spoke about their baptism as as something that was inspired by the the devil to preempt Christianity. But Hmm. um, you you see in the movie uh, Gladiator, there's a scene there where for the first time when Maximus is coming out with the other gladiators into that local arena there in North Africa, uh, they pass through a, a shower of blood and mm. most people don't notice it, but I recognize it because I, from my studies of St Justin Martyr, it's called sure. a Torah bullion. Torah, Taurus bull, right? It's, yes. a, it's a, they're being baptized in the blood of bulls, uh, which is dripping upon their bodies as they enter into the arena. Uh, so there's there's always been baptism uh, mm. of different forms and different religions. Mm. And of course, uh, we know about baptism in christianity primarily because of jesus's injunction
0: yeah and of course we're discussing the necessity of baptism which uh, clearly infers uh, that there are those who do not believe that baptism is necessary Uh, who are they robert and why do they think that baptism is unnecessary
1: well these are other christians non-catholic christians um two come to mind the salvation army or Evangelical Anglicans, the Salvation Army do not believe in baptism as necessary for salvation, because they believe it to be a work. If you hold faith uh-huh. alone theology that we're justified and saved by faith alone, well, faith is, you know, in their definition, fiducial faith is accepting Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, trusting in his cross uh, as and the work of Jesus on the cross, and only that work uh, embracing that, and and by, by doing that, you're saved. Um, well, then you don't need anything else. And something like an external ritual involving actions and words, in addition to the act of faith, contradicts faith alone theology. Uh, and and they class it as a work, and therefore not necessary. For evangelical Anglicans, they're not that radical. They do baptize, um, and but they hold it to be just an injunction it's not necessary for salvation as such. Like, like the, um, salvation army, they certainly adhere strictly to faith alone theology. Um, but they do baptize because they see Jesus commanding it in the gospels. And, um, they do it as one of those injunctions of Jesus, an exhortation of his, one of his counsels. Mm -hmm. So if you do it, that's great. But if you don't do it, that's not, uh, that doesn't endanger your salvation.
0: Uh, But we as Catholics, of course, believe in the necessity of baptism. And even in the book, you've given us a quote from the Council of Trent, uh, quote, if anyone says that baptism is free, that is not necessary for salvation, let him be anathema. Uh, That's that's another word I wouldn't mind you defining for us, Robert. We do see the word anathema bandied about uh, a bit today. Could you explain to us what this anathema is?
1: Yeah, well, the word anathema is a very severe word. It means, strictly speaking, it means cursed or cut Mm. off. So in the time of the Protestant Reformation, we have the Council of Trent, so that decree is uh, around 1547. And there were some of the so-called reformers, as I call them, were obviously advocating in the early years of the Reformation that baptism is either not necessary or optional. Um, that's why that the, the Council of Trent used the term free. That is, you're free as to whether you, you uh, receive it or not, or administer it or not. But the Council of Trent isn't making up its own doctrine, it's mm-hmm. asserting that uh, baptism is necessary for salvation because Jesus commands it when He says, "Go forth, baptize all nations." And this is recorded in Matthew, you know, chapter twenty-eight, mm-hmm. verse nineteen, etc. You know, "Go baptize all nations in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit." Well, all nations excludes nobody, mm-hmm. and this is something that's comes, really is obvious. It should be obvious to all Christians. When you accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, well, if he is Lord, well, what you normally do with lords, you normally obey them. Mm. And if the Lord commands something, we ought to obey it. And if we deliberately ignore a command of the Lord, who's also King of Kings as well as Lord of Lords, Mm. then you are really putting your salvation in great jeopardy. Mm. And that's why, the uh, and and we we baptise and the Catholic Church asserts the necessity of baptism because the Lord Jesus commanded it.
0: And you've already quoted one passage of Scripture. Of course, we Catholics have uh, sacred tradition as well as uh, Scripture to rely on, as well as the magisterial teaching of the church. Is there any other scriptural backups for the claim that baptism is necessary?
1: Uh, one of the most famous quotes that Protestants love to themselves always refer to is John chapter three, verses three to five. You know, you hear you must be born again. Yes. Okay. Yep. All right. Well, yep. unfortunately, most Protestants, for some reason, and I can't explain why, never give us the whole quote. Jesus says, "You must be born again of water and the Spirit." Mm. and tradition the apostolic tradition and what we read in the fathers of the church is unanimous in in teaching that water and the spirit here refers to the water baptism of jesus christ Um, and so you know you must be you must be born again there's an imperative there of water and the spirit now i remember once i was in a debate in a house this is back in 1999, where the Protestant minister said to me, a oh, water in the spirit means the human body, uh, body and soul. Water because the body is 90% water and spirit is a human soul. So born again for them, he's arguing again, the born again is simply a the renovation of mind and heart and will. And that's absolutely necessary, mm-hmm. and no doubt about mm-hmm. it. It's, core necessity for our authentic conversions to jesus christ but of the water and the spirit is an initial reference uh the language is not theological it's not sacramental theology here that jesus is giving us but it obviously refers to water as water and the holy spirit working with the water as an instrumental cause to infuse the life of grace into us so that's the first quote john 3 verses and, and if
0: yeah if i if, three and five isn't it and and yeah. if i may uh you know um is the is the water something that comes first and then the spirit later you know we we hear even in some catholic circles talking about uh baptism in the spirit so is it a two-step process is that what confirmation does or is something different happening here
1: well with with baptism, it's simultaneous. Uh-huh. So you, the spirit the water, and the water, right? Yeah, you pour yep. the water or you immerse the candidate in water at the same time you're reciting the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. So the matter is the water, the form are the words. We are not free to change the water to tomato sauce or change the words to you know in the name of the lord jesus or or creator um savior uh, sanctify or redeemer sanctify as some people have done we can't change the element the matter or the or the form the words it's simultaneous and when they those two occur simultaneously the holy spirit as uncreated grace and the gifts of the Holy Spirit created grace and fused into the soul. But the mm-hmm. other quote I want to give you yes, that God. emphasizes the necessity of baptism is one of Jesus' own, a last words said on the cross. He who believes and is baptized, no, sorry, the last words of Jesus before he sends into heaven, mm-hmm. Mark 16, 16, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe shall be condemned.
0: And and you mentioned you mentioned the word work before, because when when I and this was one of the ones I discovered on my own journey home, it, it seems to me that baptism is a work of faith. Am I getting that right?
1: Well, it's an action. It's okay. it's something, of course, we're human beings. We're not purely spiritual beings. We we have a body okay, and a soul and we're a composite. We're mixed spirits. And so we always engage in actions. and. Of course, Jesus elsewhere said, do this in memory of me. Yeah. There's another command, do this, okay? Jesus then sent the disciples, they also anointed people with oil who were sick. They were to cast out demons. These all involve actions, Mm -hmm. okay? And the accompanying words. And Mm -hmm. the church does these things because it was our Lord himself who empowered the disciples who later became apostles uh, to to preach yes and to teach mm-hmm. yes but also to do these actions mm-hmm. uh to do the
0: work right to do, to do the works. works of faith and this is where we get our faith and works from right yeah yeah are there any other passages that you particularly like
1: um oh there's one more um and it relates i think it's one peter Three. Now I need to find it. I think it's. I found. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here it is. Um, one Peter three twenty one. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you.
0: Mm-hmm. Now that's
1: referring to a, a, another uh, question. But if baptism saves us, then you, you should be believing that it's necessary. I mean, is it simply about obedience? Yes. In the end it is, Okay, Uh, but we we do it out of obedience, but there's also spiritual benefit. I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, that Jesus isn't just asking us to go through some symbolic ceremony. Mm -hmm. He's commanding baptism because baptism is an instrument through which the merits of Christ one on the cross are applied to each individual immediately. So, then we need to have a look at what are the benefits of baptism we do it out of obedience but we also do it because there are real anointing and spiritual benefits um, that flow from receiving baptism
0: so what exactly is the the effects of baptism then
1: well firstly incorporates us into Jesus Christ that makes mm-hmm. us a member of Jesus Christ it's our anointing Christ is the anointed one and we become Christians little Christs mm-hmm. little anointed ones we become a member of Jesus Christ we become a member of his church his body his mystical body we receive a spiritual seal um, this is what the fathers of the church they gave it that name Uh, technical theological books would call it an indelible character. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's like a fingerprint, a spiritual fingerprint on our souls. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the fathers of the church called it a seal because in the days of the Roman Empire, you belonged to the army of the emperor and you were sealed, you were branded. So Mm -hmm. you might have had burnt into your arm um, legio deitum. Uh, that is the tenth legion, uh, which is Fretensis. So they, when if your head was cut off in battle, they'll see the branding on your arm, and they know that you belong to the tenth legion. And mm-hmm. the fathers of the church took that and applied that to uh, one of the effects of baptism. When we're baptized, mm-hmm. we're incorporated into another army of another, um, the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's Jesus Christ, and we're sealed. And we're branded, uh, and that's the mark that uh, signifies our incorporation into the, into the army of Jesus Christ. So that's the the next thing, and then we receive all these wonderful things, um, as I've referred to earlier. The most important is uncreated grace. That is, we have the life of the Blessed Trinity infused into us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a reference to that in John fourteen twenty three. Mm -hmm. Um, If you love me, my Father will love you, and we will come and make our abode in you. That's the life of the Trinity within us. Jesus also spoke, I think there are references off the top of my head in John 4, John 7, about the the life of the Christian flowing within him as like uh, waters overflowing. Mm. That's another reference to the life of the Holy Spirit. St. Paul uses the term temple of the Holy Spirit repeatedly in his epistles. Then we receive created gifts, created graces to assist us in our Christian lives. And they are what we call theological and moral virtues, theological virtues to assist us in our relationship directly with God. And they're the infused theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, and the infused moral virtues of uh, temperance, fortitude, prudence, and justice. I'm going quickly here, because these are topics in their own right. Mm-hmm. Then we receive the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that is the, they, they sum up the, the benefits of baptism. And as someone now who's been brought into a new relationship with God, uh, we get a right to actual graces from God. We're in a new status, a new situation. And God will give us the graces to be to be that faithful Christian. The actual graces are uh, sufficient graces to be faithful for the rest of our lives.
0: Mm. And uh, there's a relationship between baptism and sin too, I believe.
1: Well, I forgot that point. <laughs> yes, thank you for reminding me. Yes, yeah, I, I was trying to
0: do it subtly, Robert. You've, yeah, you, yeah. You've, you called attention to yourself there. Yeah. <laughs> <Good>.
1: <laughs> Well, baptism, (laughs) in receiving all these wonderful things, we actually are forgiven of original sin because we had these gifts originally before the fall. Adam and Eve had those gifts. Adam was the repository of all graces uh, for the whole of humanity, and they ought to be passed on through natural generation. He bankrupted himself, same as Eve, and they bankrupted the whole of humanity. So baptism... um, gives us a restoration of what God intended intended us to have from the beginning. So baptism washes away sin. It forgives Mm. sins. It it infuses into us the life of grace. Um, And if you're an adult and you receive baptism, you not only have original sin forgiven, but all actual sins forgiven, mortal and venial, and all temporal punishment due to sin uh, remitted so if you die immediately after baptism, you go straight to heaven.
0: Mm. In fact, in the in the early church, many of them put off baptism for this very reason, didn't they?
1: Yeah, and in doing so, that probably illustrated um, an, a rather impoverished understanding of the sacrament of mm. penance. Mm. Um, because really, and I know one classic case was Constantine. He put off his baptism until his deathbed. Uh, as the first Christian emperor, but if you have a proper understanding of the sacrament of penance and its power, then mm-hmm. you know you wouldn't be delaying baptism, because okay. if you do fall seriously after uh, baptism, well, we've got the the pit stop. I call it, I like to call it the pit stop of of the race of life. We're all I in like a it. race. Yeah, it's a fast paced life, and yeah, we we crash sometimes. We crash terribly, and what's mm-hmm. our pit stop? Well, it's a sacrament of penance.
0: Okay, so it's a quick change of the tires. Uh, In this analogy, is the Eucharist the fuel then? Or or, or does the analogy break down here? I
1: would have to (laughs) say it is. I would Um, have to say excellent, as an analogous.
0: Yes. yes comparison. Right. Yeah. No yes. point in putting fuel in until the, the tires are changed, though, right, Robert? All right, we need well, to be in a state of grace to receive the Eucharist. Yeah, of course. <laughs> now, it seems to me that there's a lot going on in baptism here, and we're, we're, we're actually receiving quite a bit here. But there are those who would say that that baptism is no more than, like, the washing of skin, and, you know, not even that. It's just kind of... Pouring water over the skin, or just going under the water and coming out again—that it really doesn't do anything. It doesn't even forgive sins. What would you say to that?
1: Yeah, well, I've, I have have i have received that objection mm. uh, personally in, in private debates. But I'd like to refer people to the Acts of the Apostles. Um, I'm going to read you two quotes from the Acts of the Apostles, and the first one is Acts two thirty-eight, and Peter said to them, "Repent." and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we see there, this is at Pentecost, Peter's first public preaching, very successful, thousands of converts. He connects directly baptism, the baptism of Jesus Christ with the forgiveness of sins and the infusion of the life of uncreated grace. And then we go to another verse in the acts of the apostles chapter 22 16 and we have some um some paul saying and now why do you wait rise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name again directly linking baptism with the washing away of our sins and and another quote i'll give you back to um the one I referred earlier, one mm-hmm. Peter three twenty one, baptism which corresponds to this now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So St. Peter almost directs uh, answers your direction, sorry, your objection directly. Uh, baptism saves us. Hold on, mm-hmm. isn't it Jesus who saves us? Mm-hmm. Yes, it's Jesus who saves us, but baptism applies the merits of Jesus that he won for us on the cross immediately to us, directly to each one of his believers. And it saves us because it forgives sin. It forgives original sin and all actual sins. And as St. Peter says, it's not simply a washing that removes dirt from the body. It is an appeal to God for a clear conscience, meaning that once we're washed, once we're forgiven of sin, we have a clear conscience before God. Okay, mm-hmm. so that, that's they're the three quotes I'll give you there.
0: Yeah, is this the same as regeneration, a word that yeah. comes up quite a bit when you're you're studying this sort of stuff?
1: Yeah, regeneration.
0: Yeah, we, and is it? And, have... and what's the relationship? Because I know um, many Protestants believe that there's kind of this one-time uh, point in history where you believe in Jesus Christ and and you're saved from that moment, and then. It's once saved, always saved, and there may or may not be sanctification going on, but the regeneration is is a point in time. But you're saying that uh, baptism and regeneration are actually uh,
1: intric- intricately linked, right? Well, we talk. We all believe in being need to be born again. Yeah, and back on John three verses three to five, it must be born again of water and the Spirit. It is water and Spirit that is Christian baptism that. Uh, makes us born again. Regeneration, being regenerated, is being born again. Uh-huh. Regeneration. Now, the Greek word here, I'm looking at it here, um, palingenesia, born It's regenerated. What's what's been regenerated? We were generated with Adam and Eve with the life okay. of God, that was lost because of original sin. We are conceived and born in original sin. So to be regenerated is to receive again, something that was meant for us, but was lost. And what is the regeneration? It is being infused with the life of God, uncreated grace and created grace. That's what interiorly transforms us. Then the question is, well, where's that in the Bible? Mm-hmm. Regeneration. Well, I'll go to Titus three verses five to six. Mm-hmm. I'll read this quote in full. He saved us, not because of deeds done by us in righteousness, okay? So salvation is a gift, Mm -hmm. unmerited, that is Catholic teaching, but in virtue of his own mercy, the the, the graciousness of God, by the washing of regeneration, what's this Mm -hmm. washing? Mm -hmm. Baptism, Mm -hmm. and this baptism regenerates, and renewal in the holy spirit yes it's not the water by itself that washes us spiritually it can't water is simply a material reality how can it wash us spiritually because it becomes an instrument Um, the holy spirit works with the holy spirit is the one who regenerates and he works with water as an instrumental cause to infuse the grace because water has the symbolism of washing It actually washes us physically. It doesn't wash us spiritually, but it symbolizes the spiritual washing. And united with the action of the Holy Spirit, using the water as a tool, so to speak, an instrument, the Holy Spirit regenerates us, which he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So, yes, baptism and the Holy Spirit come to us from the Savior. I mean, Jesus says he he goes back to the Father in in order to send us the Holy Spirit. Baptism is born of Jesus Christ from his side when he's pierced. Hmm. It's one of the two fruits of the new tree of life, that is cross of Calvary. The other fruit being the Eucharist. The Eucharist and baptism are the two sacraments Jesus speaks of speaks of an imperative term unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood you shall have no life in you unless you're born again of the of water and the spirit okay etc etc so those two sacraments are born at the same moment from the side of christ when he's pierced um, by the by the roman soldier on the cross what comes forth from his right side is blood and water symbolizing the eucharist and baptism
0: that's excellent and thank you so much for mentioning uh, uh, the passages in Titus that was a huge one for me a major discovery on my own journey back to the Catholic Church from Protestantism so um glorious um, are there examples in scripture I mean we know we know that Jesus was baptized by John um, we know that um, uh, that there's baptisms going on. Are uh, there is some examples in scripture of people being baptized?
1: Every convert that mm-hmm. we read about in the new Testament is baptized. Every what single does that one.
0: Say? Yeah. Mm? Every, every
1: single every, one. Everyone wow. we read about by name. Okay. That tells us that the early church, the apostolic church did not believe baptism, to be just an ordinance, an optional ordinance. That was the word I was looking for Mm -hmm. before, ordinance. It's not just an optional ordinance. Mm -hmm. The church believed it to be necessary because it was commanded by Christ and it's part of the born again experience or event. Now, let me rattle off here the names of these converts and the reference. Simon Magus, Acts 8, verses 12 to 13. The Ethiopian eunuch, Acts 8, verses 35 to 38. The household of Cornelius, Acts 10, verses 46 to 48. Lydia and her household, Acts 16, verses 14 to 15. The jailer and his family, Acts 16, verses 31 to 33. Crispus and his entire household, Acts eighteen eight. The believers in Ephesus, Acts 19, 2 to 5, how many examples we've just had there? More than half a dozen. And they all come to Jesus Christ and they all then obey Jesus Christ. They all receive baptism and that's Christian baptism. And those
0: some of those passages mention households. Is it just adults that are being baptized here?
1: Well, the implication is no, mm. okay? Um, We don't hear it specifically of infants. We don't read it specifically instances of infants being baptized, Mm -hmm. but those references imply that perhaps they were, because households would ordinarily include infants. The best argument for the validity of infant baptism uh, historically and theologically, they're two different arguments. Historically, because it's undoubtedly the apostolic tradition. Oregon in the second, in the third century, Augustine in the fourth century, fifth century referred to infant baptism as an apostolic tradition. That's historical evidence. A Tertullian as well refers to infant baptism. The theological um, argument in favor of infant baptism. Uh, rests on the acknowledged power of the sacrament, uh, that it infuses grace into the life of the soul. And infants can receive that grace into their souls and they don't have what's called the obex or the obstacle of conscious actual sin to block the infusion of that grace. Hmm. Um, Now, I remember in that same argument I had with that Protestant pastor back in 1999, he descended to mocking infant baptism. It's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible, etc. Mm. But I said to him, it was a restoration of God's original plan for humanity. And he looked at me, and I said, Well, look, in God's original plan, every human was to be conceived and born in grace, as an infant, newborn infant, in grace without any actual act of faith on their part. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are deprived of that through no fault of their own. They are deprived of that. Because of the sin of another. Okay, Adam and Eve, their sin bankrupted themselves spiritually in all subsequent generations. So, in God's original plan, his original plan now, because of this sin, is temporarily frustrated. Infants are conceived and born in disgrace, not grace, in mm. original sin. Um, God restores that through through infant baptism so now again parents can bring forth children into the world in grace mm-hmm. okay so it's the next best thing they're still conceived in sin but as soon as possible after birth an early christian tradition testifies that christians were baptizing children as early as eight days old as mm-hmm. a sign that baptism replaced jewish circumcision um, that You know children are brought into grace as early as possible and that's a restoration of god's original plan for humanity now why should i complain about that why is that a problem when salvation when grace is a gift freely given by god why he has no objections to it being given bestowed by the church through christian parents to their newborn children if i'm born And the day I'm born, my dad deposits into my bank account $10 million. And when I'm old enough, I realize, oh, dad, thank you very much. You know, I've got my life set up for me. I can buy my home and all. And I'm grateful for that. Well, Mm -hmm. likewise, I should be even more grateful for an even greater gift the spiritual gifts of baptism, the graces that I receive through baptism. Thank you, Mum. Thank you, Dad. For having baptized me at that early age, even though I didn't understand it, even though I didn't know what was happening, even though I didn't give consent to it. Well, you know, it's a gift. It's the most wonderful gift in the created universe to receive this grace. And I should be thankful for that and build on that as an adult
0: yeah amen thank you uh, now i do want to talk about the uh, the third objection uh, that you've put in the book we've we've kind of answered this a little bit but uh, i want to go deeper into it uh, i'm assuming that all of these objections that you have put into the book are actually objections you've encountered out in the real world so i'll just read it through for us quote uh, baptism was not important for saint paul rather he emphasized faith for salvation The same goes for other converts, end quote. Uh, So what would we we respond to this? I mean, a few of the quotes that we've already talked about are from St Paul, aren't they? Yes, look, this
1: type of objection does the classical era Mm -hmm. of false dichotomy opposing one against the other. It's faith or baptism, Hmm. right? Now, we emphasize faith, Catholics emphasize baptism. No, no they are both together Mm. the false dichotomy is to split them into two and make them opponents they are they go together baptism is the sacrament of faith the reality is is that okay let's talk about the scenario of an adult who comes to belief in jesus christ yeah i believe in you now jesus you're the son of God, you died, you rose from the dead, you ascended into heaven, you're king at the right hand of God, the father almighty, I believe that, I embrace that, but I've got to live that, so how do I live that Lord, I obey your teachings, what's one of your teachings, oh go baptize all nations, well I'm one of the all nations, so I need Robert, could you check your
0: audio? I've lost your audio at this end.
1: They are meant to work together, not in opposites.
0: Sorry, Robert, we lost your audio for a second. Could you repeat that, please?
1: Yeah, I I had an incoming call. All right. Now, so, um, which rarely happens, but okay, let's repeat that. (laughs) That's all right. Did you get the point about the fact that they are not opposites that ba- yes. faith and, uh, and baptism the the argument that somehow it's one or the other is a false co- dichotomy because it mm-hmm. places the two in opposition to each other one or the other no 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 it is faith and baptism because when we come to faith in christ we want to obey him he commands baptism baptize all nations i'm one of the all nations i ought to receive this baptism that christ commands um, and that seals me formally as a member of Christ, a member of the church. It completes the conversion that began in my heart, in my mind. And now I'm sealed. I, I'm a member of the church, as I said. And it's like the hand in the glove. Mm-hmm. The two go together. Okay. Faith mm-hmm. is the hand. Baptism is the glove. Mm.
0: Okay. Okay. Earlier, you mentioned that uh, the def- one of the, the the definition of baptism is to be immersed in water. So, is full immersion necessary for baptism to take place?
1: Well, yeah, this is interesting. There are arguments out there, <laughs> Protestant arguments, that baptism is not necessary; mm-hmm. it's a work. Mm-hmm. But then there are people who say, well, the Catholic Church is not doing the work properly you're not saved unless you're baptized by full immersion. So mm-hmm. now they're insisting that, uh, that the work must be of a particular type of work. In actual right. fact, it's again, false dichotomy. Baptism by full immersion is wonderful. It's valid, um, so long as, as the proper words are pronounced, That so long as the form is valid in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit. So you can be baptized by full immersion. We see in the ancient church, there so were plenty of baptismal fonts, uh, still is, is surviving today from, you know, the, the third, fourth, fifth centuries where obviously adults, stepped into the waters of baptism, you know, baptized in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit, and then emer- emerged out, mm-hmm. etc. cetera. Now looked after, you know, deacons or deaconesses, uh, you know, whether they are male or female. And but baptism is also valid if it's just sprinkled or poured upon the candidate. And what's the evidence for this? Well, firstly, there's Old Testament evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, baptism was referred to by the prophet Ezekiel, you know, um, in the sixth century BC. And he writes as follows. Um I've got it in two places here. I'll try and give you the full version. Uh, yeah, the prophet Ezekiel foretold that the Lord will one day, quote, sprinkle clean water upon you, sprinkle, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. Okay. And that's Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 26. So there we see a prophecy relating to baptism where. The term of the prophet is sprinkle. The Lord will sprinkle you. Now, we also have testimony from that's implied from the scriptures. So we have, when we look at the conversion and baptism of 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost, uh, that followed from St. Peter's preaching, um, they weren't running, and I've been to Jerusalem, they're not running waters They're not running rivers through Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. So how do you baptize 3,000 of them in a single day? Mm -hmm. And most probably these 3,000 would have had water poured or sprinkled upon them with the appropriate words. Uh, We have Acts 9.18 and Acts 22.16. St. Paul is baptized after he rose in the house of Anonites. In Acts 10, 47, 48, St. Peter baptizes Cornelius and his household. Now, most likely, in these baptisms done within homes would have been baptism by sprinkling or um, pouring water upon the candidate because most homes in the ancient world, in this part of the world, didn't have large bathtubs. Hmm. And my, my last... I'll refer to the Didache, which is an ancient text um, from the end of the first century, written somewhere between AD 90 and and 150. It says, speaking about baptism, it says, if you have, okay, I'll read the whole quote, if you bear with me for a moment. Baptize thus, after foregoing instructions, after the foregoing instructions, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in living water that's flowing water if you have no living water then baptize in other water if you are not able in cold then in warm if you have neither pour water three times on the head in the name of the father and son of the holy spirit before the baptism let the one baptizing and the one to be baptized fast as also any others who are able. Now, you see there, this is evidence of the early church, the apostolic church, or the um, immediate sub-apostolic church, that they had a variety of baptismal practices. The words remain the same in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit, but it could have been by full immersion or pouring or sprinkling. Right. Excellent. Excellent. You're still there, Matthew? As
0: long as you can still. Can you hear me,
1: Robert? I can hear you.
0: Oh, good. In that case, we'll just keep going. We'll just look at my frozen face. So, did you have any more to say on that subject?
1: No, that's that's all I need to say about full immersion. Excellent.
0: Now, you have also talked a little bit about, uh, and, and as many of us know with our sacraments, you, you need correct matter, correct form, and correct intent. We've already talked about, and the form being, uh, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, what about baptism in the name of Jesus?
1: Well, yes. And that's referred to quite a few times in the Acts of the Apostles. And specific references are in Acts 2, 38, 39. I've already read that. Acts 8, 16. Acts 10, 48. Acts 19, 1 to 5. Acts 22, 16. Now, um, as a consequence of reading these verses, a number of Protestant denominations automatically just baptize their candidates in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they say they been most true to Scripture. And let's read Acts 2, 38, 39. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, as I read earlier. So be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. So Catholics and other traditional Christians baptized in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit, they're not Mm -hmm. doing what the early Christians did, so their baptisms are invalid. Hmm. Uh, but the argument here is that in the name of the, of Jesus Christ is simply a term that means in the baptism of Jesus Christ, um, as distinct, say, from the baptism of John the Baptist or any other form of baptism that existed in other religions. Mm-hmm. And the baptism of Jesus Christ is what he commanded. Mm-hmm. And we know what he commanded in Matthew 28, verse 19 onwards, go baptize all nations, in the name, that's that's a singular onoma in Greek. Onoma meaning name, it's singular. In one name, and what's that name? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And
0: uh, we have actually had examples uh recently in the Catholic Church where Uh, changing of those words has actually resulted in invalid baptism. Uh, The the recent case, of course, I'm talking about is that uh, a priest over in the US um, was sent a copy of his baptism, where a deacon baptised him in the name of the Creator and the Redeemer and the Sanctifier. And in fact, that poor priest then had to redo all of his sacraments. And so it's extremely important that we use the correct form, isn't it, Robert?
1: Yeah. And we had that in Australia as well, really? in Brisbane, a few mm-hmm. decades ago. Mm-hmm. And also we had an instance where the priest said, the community baptize you in mm-hmm. the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy. It's not the community that baptises, mm-hmm. it's Jesus Christ who baptises through the, the ministry of the priest who acts in the person of Christ. In persona Christi, I baptize you in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. Right? not the community. Now, this these tragic things happen because of the mindset that prevails today in and outside of the church is individualism, this free spirit notion that, you know, we need to be update the church we need to be trendy we need to be you know we need we shouldn't be sticking rigidly to old forms and formulas and practices they're all outdated and irrelevant and we want to do you know the trendy thing or the nice mm. community thing well i'm sorry it doesn't work that way mm. you know jesus christ gave us the sacraments the ritual sacraments and we have we have no authority the church has no authority to change the matter and form Mm -hmm. That's why same with uh, ordination to the ministerial priesthood, Jesus Christ set the boundaries. And from the very beginning, ordination to the ministerial priesthood is reserved to males only. Mm -hmm. uh, John Paul II recognized this in his teaching in May uh, 1994, that the church has no authority to ordain women to the ministerial priesthood. The church and even and even more so, any individual Christian or priest, cleric, bishop has no authority to alter the sacraments, the administration of the sacraments.
0: Indeed, and of course, in always as always in the in the book, uh, you'll put some quotes from the early church and the church fathers. We've already discussed the Didache. Uh, are there any others that you would like to mention from the
1: fathers? Yeah, I've included four others, and Justin Martyr Tertullian. Oregon, St. Cyril of Jerusalem, but I, there's one, my favourite one I want to refer to tonight is from Justin Martin, his dialogue with Trifo the Jew, uh, paragraph 44. This is written around the year one AD 155, and for me, it sums up the whole of Catholic doctrine. Now, remember, this is second century. This is not a Roman Catholic. This is a ancient Christian, um, you know, from Palestine who then goes to Ephesus and eventually goes to Rome so he's a primitive Roman Catholic but he's not from Rome so Mm -hmm. uh, this testifies very truthfully to the you know the apostolic tradition that was inherited by Justin and the practices which are still valid today so he says the following it is necessary to hasten to learn in what way forgiveness of sins and a hope of the inheritance of the promised good things may be yours. There is no other way than this. Acknowledge this Christ, be washed in the washing announced by Isaiah for the forgiveness of sins and henceforth live sinlessly. That sums it up. So if you want to be saved, you want to go to heaven, that's what he means by the hope of the inheritance of the promised good things. We firstly accept Jesus Christ and obey Him. So that's the obedience is expressed in being washed in the washing announced by Isaiah. I haven't. I got to see what Isaiah's, Isaiah said, which relates to baptism. But that is then be baptized, and this baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. And afterwards, we are to live sinlessly. That's it. That's the Catholic teaching. Nothing has changed.
0: Excellent. Thank you so very much, Dr. Robert Haddad. Uh, well, we've come to the end of our time now. As I mentioned uh, at the beginning of this episode, uh, Perusia has just had our first fundraising dinner in three years. Uh, please do consider donating to the work of Perusia. Go to perusiamedia.com forward slash donate. Dr. Robert Haddad, thank you so very much for your time this evening and uh, for this uh, latest episode of Defend the Faith Line.
1: And thank you for your work, your continued work with Perusia in all areas, not just with respect to this recording, because without you, this wouldn't be happening. And thank you very much. And God bless. It's
0: an honour. Thank you. So that is enough from us for now. We'll see you again next month. Uh, Get stuck into your studies and may God bless you all richly in your, in your studies and your pursuit of defending the faith. Thanks for listening to the Perusia Podcast. If you've enjoyed these podcasts, please share with your family and friends. And for more information about everything Perusia, please visit our website at perusiamedia.com.